I like to start out at the beginning of the year. Look, at the beginning of the year, people are optimistic about what's ahead. And uh, I feel like God has laid just a couple of things on my heart for our church as well. And so I want to share just a few things with you here. Uh, and um, I'm going to do so from 2 Corinthians, if I can find my notes in here. Um, it says this in, in 2 Corinthians, starting in uh, chapter 4, verse 15. It says this, For it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Uh, real quickly, the reason why I feel like this verse or this passage is, is, is on my heart for 2018, for me personally, I'll be honest and say, I think 2017 was a challenging year for me. Uh, it, it was a year, as far as Maricopa Springs is concerned, if I'm honest, uh, of some discouragement in that... Uh, always threatens when I in, in, enter into these seasons of discouragement, it, it, it threatens to derail me, to, to cause me to take my eyes off of Christ. And there's just a few things in here that I want to share with you that I am so optimistic for our church in 2018. And the truth is, I, I can be somewhat of a pessimist, but when it comes to the church, I am an eternal optimist. Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so whatever things we might see around us going on, we have great hope in the fact that Jesus has promised he will build his church. So there's just a few things I want to lay out for you from this passage real quick. First of all, I believe in 2018 we are going to see the goodness of God in greater measure. And I believe that not just with blind optimism, but because I think that that is a promise that we can draw from God's word, that God will be continually revealing to his people how good he is. Second, I think we're going to see grace extended to more and more people. Uh, one of the joys of having Jim come up here and pray for him is that Jim gave his life to Jesus as a result of Maricopa Springs. I mean, God did this work in his life because of this church being here in Maricopa. And I firmly believe that God has planted our church here for the sake of his grace being extended to more and more people. If you were here last week, you heard my dad preach on uh, evangelism and just what it means to share the gospel. And I believe that God has a purpose for Maricopa Springs to save law, the lost people around us. And so we're going to see his grace go to more and more people, not only those who are lost, but also in our lives. Uh, I think that a promise we can gather from this is that we as a church and we as individuals are going to be renewed by the grace of God every single day. Uh, scripture tells us that the mercies of God are new every morning. And we see that every day as the sun rises, God is ever faithful to us. And so be encouraged. Whatever this year may hold for you, whatever last year held for you, believe in the truth that God will renew your spirit each and every day because he has promised to do so. Next, by God's grace, I believe that our afflictions 
that we experience in this life are not worth considering in the light of the glory that we have to see in the face of Jesus. In other words, whatever suffering may come our way in this next year, whatever suffering has come our way in the last year, it pales in comparison to the beauty of Jesus. And so again, be encouraged. God may have suffering in store for you this year. He may have more trials and difficulties in store for our church in 2018. But none of that will cause us to be distracted from the beauty and the glory that we see in the face of Jesus. And finally, I would say we're going to press towards the things that are of eternal significance, and we're not going to be distracted. Uh, Man, I I sometimes joke about the fact that this is a difficult space to meet in. You're going to hear the ceiling begin to crack in a few moments as the sun warms up the metal. Uh, We've got a children's ministry that is in another building, and as it gets hot, it's kind of a pain to walk your kids back there. There are a million things that I could go through that are material distractions, but we as a church will not be dissuaded by those things from focusing our eyes on Jesus, from seeing His glory, from pursuing the things that have eternal significance. And so I just wanted to share these things with you because Uh, I am optimistic about what God intends to do at Maricopa Springs in this next year, what He intends to do in your heart and in your life in the weeks and months ahead. And I guess my prayer would be that you'll stick in it with us and you too will see this eternal weight of glory that God is preparing for us in spite of what valleys and mountaintops might be ahead of us in the year to come. So to that end, let me pray, and then we will truly get into the the preaching for this morning. God, we trust these things not because we are faithful, but because you are faithful. And for more than 2,000 years, your people have depended on the promises of your word. And in your time, we have seen them come to fruition. And so we do have great optimism in the work that you're doing. Lord, there are lost people in this community who we probably, upon meeting them, would think that there's not a hope for them, and yet it's your intention to redeem them, and we long to see that through our church. Lord, if if we knew all of the difficulties that the next year or years might hold for us, we might become discouraged. And yet we can look to the cross and see that there is no difficulty which your power cannot overcome. There is nothing that is beyond the reach of your resurrection power. And we worship you for that. And Lord, we, we dare to ask you for great things for Maricopa Springs. Lord, that the people in this room might grow to be ever greater disciples. That you would raise up new leaders, that the children that we are raising to love you would indeed grow to love you with all of their hearts. Lord, that this community would be deeper knit together like a family, that we would be a city on a hill and a refuge for those that are broken and weary and lost, that we would see the glory of your son, Jesus, manifest in his bride, the church. And Lord, we do ask these things with fear and trembling because they're too much. They're too much for us to accomplish. And yet for you, they're, they're nothing. And so would you do a great and mighty work, both in us and through us, we pray, in this year as you move Maricopa Springs forward. And we love you. We worship you. 
We thank you for your son Jesus, for your faithfulness in every moment of every day. And we just trust ourselves to you. In Christ's name and for his sake, for his glory, we pray. Amen. Man. Uh, all right. Well, it's good to be with you guys this morning. I, I would love for you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 in your Bibles. Uh, we're going to spend most of the year going through the book of Luke together, continuing through the book of Luke. But like I've mentioned at the beginning of the year, I, I like to do what most people do, which is just kind of take stock of life in the future and consider these things. We've made it to 2018, despite some people who typically annually doubt that the future will arrive. Here it is. And as is customary at the beginning of the year, uh, people make all kinds of resolutions, right? They look forward to a new year and they ponder what their life might potentially look like if they were to make some nuanced changes. And I think that that's generally a good thing. I have some personal goals for 2018. I have some goals for our church for 2018. I think it's wise to think uh, carefully about the future. So sort of in the tradition of this new, or, or in the spirit of this New Year's tradition, I thought I would share with you a few resolutions that I came across on a popular news website, okay? Uh, if you're looking for some inspiration, here you go. I've got 12 of them that I wrote down. Turn off your phone. I thought especially a church would go well after that one, unless you use it as your Bible. Uh, remember your manners. Maybe that one also, especially at church, could go well after that. Clean your shoes. Um, maybe also especially at church. I know some of you are looking at me like, what? Yeah, this is what I found on the website. Clean your shoes. Um, go to the theater. I assume that means the, the like, you know, acting live theater, not movie theater. Cook a different recipe every week. Stop buying material goods which if you're still paying off the Christmas credit card debt, that probably sounds especially refreshing. Find love, as if it was just that easy. Walk to work, which is not an option if you live in Maricopa. Read a book. I highly encourage that one, especially this particular book. Grow something to eat. I assume that one is mostly for the vegetarians because... For those of you like me who like bacon, that would be a little bit weird. Hug is number 11, and make a Christmas cake is number 12. Okay, now maybe you're feeling like me. Some of these are good. Some of these are just ridiculous, right? They're just silly. And what we really have here, I, I think, is a self-improvement plan. That's what happens at New Year. People think of a self-improvement plan. They evaluate their life over the past year. They look back at the prior year, and in general, most people go, I'm not entirely happy with the outcome. I think I could do better. I wish that it had gone a little bit differently. And so as a result, as they think about the year coming, they resolve to do better. They resolve to do things differently so that they can be a better person in the months and year to come. Uh, tragically, though, I stumbled across another article in the New York Times, and this article said that by the end of any given calendar year, 90% of people have failed to follow through on their New Year's resolutions. Is anybody surprised? 
Actually, the article went a little bit deeper and said that by the end of the first month, most people have forgotten what their resolutions even are and failed weeks before that to even commit to actually doing them. So what we have here is this strange paradox within the human heart or the human psyche where people inherently know their life needs to be better and yet almost nobody follows through with their personal plan for self-improvement. Isn't that fascinating? And so around New Year's, we see all kinds of people acknowledge they need to be a better person as they evaluate the coming year of their life, and then almost nobody does anything about it. Very few people have the resolve necessary to follow through on those things they think will be meaningful changes to their lives. The truth is, unfortunately, we're, we're just not all that good at self-improvement. We're just not that good at it. Now, here's why I find this important. I wonder if sometimes Christians see Christianity, their faith, as just another process for self-improvement, another nifty technique to sort of be a better person in the world. In other words, think of it this way. In the secular world, people, as they evaluate the new year, they declare to themselves, this year, I'm going to be a better person. And I can't help but wonder if all over churches, Christians are declaring to themselves at the beginning of the year, this year, I'm going to be a better Christian. I'm going to do it. Now, on the surface, that may seem like a very noble thing to declare, and I certainly want to encourage all of us to strive to be good Christians, but I think the statement, this year I'm going to be a better Christian, fundamentally misunderstands the Christian faith. And I want to explore that with you a little bit this morning, as if Christianity were really just another form of self-improvement, as if it were really just another kind of resolution that you can tack on to your life to be a better person, to bring out a better version of yourself another nifty technique for self-improvement. And I have to ask you, as you think about the year ahead of you, is that how you see Christianity? I mean, do you find yourself sort of buckling down and saying, this year I'm going to be a better Christian, I promise, God. Now, truthfully, as the year starts, I hope you look back at 2017 and I hope you evaluate the state of your life. And I do hope that you make some personal goals and some positive changes. I think that that would be a good thing. But to resolve in your heart, this year I'm going to be a better Christian, as noble as it is, get this, I don't think it's even actually Christian. Because the Christian faith is something altogether different. It's altogether foreign to the idea of self-improvement. Christianity is not like anything else because Christianity is not about what you do. Christianity is about this wonderful thing that God has done to you, to transform you, to change you. It's about what God has done for you and in you. It's about the work that he continues to do to transform you every single day through the power of his Holy Spirit alive inside of you. And so as you think about the year ahead, I want to start off with what I hope will be a pretty clear picture of what the Christian faith actually is, what the Christian life looks like, so that the truth of Christianity, the hope of Christianity, can transform you from the inside out in this year ahead. 
and actually encourage you and not discourage you when you get to the end of the year and you look back and you go, man, I really didn't do a very good job, did I? What you do will lead to discouragement. But what Christ has done, if we can focus on that, will breathe encouragement in the months ahead. So, from our passage of Ephesians, let me read this. I I have four things that I want you to understand about the life that we live as Christians. These are them. The Christian life is a distinct life. The Christian life is true life. The Christian life is spiritual life. And the Christian life is new life. Let me read Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to read uh, 17 through uh, 24. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So again, first, the Christian life is a distinct life. Look again at verses 17 and 18. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. What we have here in verse 17 is a command. Paul tells the Christians in the uh, the church in Ephesus, That they can no longer live their lives like the pagans do, like the Gentiles do, like the non-believers around them. I think that the fact that Paul has to write this implies that it was an ongoing problem. I laugh sometimes when people are like, they'll say to me, we just need to get back to the first century church. And I'm like, really, have you read the New Testament? Because in my experience, the first century church had quite a few problems. The fact that Paul has to write this as an encouragement to the church implies that this was an issue for the church, slipping back into an indistinct life that looked like the Gentiles. This means that all through history, church people have fallen short in their understanding that to be a Christian means that we live distinct from the world around us. And Paul wants these people to understand they are different because of what Christ has done in them. Something has happened and now everything has changed. In essence, he says this, once upon a time you belonged to the Gentiles, to those people, to the pagans, to the non-believers, to those who are far from God, which means you walked as they walked, you talked as they talked, you engaged in the same kinds of behaviors, you were darkened by ignorance, You blended in among them at their places of work, at their malls, their coffee shops, their schools, and their neighborhoods. You fit right in because you were part of them. And if someone with a magnifying glass were to scrutinize your life, they would not have been able to see you amongst 
the backdrop of the pagan, unbelieving world because you blended right into the crowd. But now, now something has happened in your life and you no longer fit into this category. You have received a life from Jesus that is different and you pop out amongst the backdrop of the world. It is unmistakably a different life because of what Jesus has done. Unmistakably different. And what is this thing that he has done? Verse 18, it says that the Gentiles and the pagans and the non-believers are alienated from the life of God because of their hardness of heart. But now, God, through Christ, has conquered the hard human heart. Man, if I could describe this distinct Christian life to you in terms similar to what Paul is describing here, I would say that to be a Christian is to have your stony heart pulverized into a living, feeling flesh by the abiding love of God through Christ. To be a Christian is to have your stony heart pulverized into a living, feeling flesh by the abiding love of God through Christ. How could we look upon our Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, buried in the tomb, and risen to new life? How could we see him in glory like that? And then shrug our shoulders, meh, and go about our lives living as if the whole world had not been utterly changed by this wonderful, magnificent thing that God has done in Christ. To see Jesus risen is to see the world rightly. And when you see the world rightly, you cannot but help stick out like a sore thumb amongst the backdrop, utterly different and distinct, because your understanding is no longer darkened and your heart is no longer stony. And what I'm describing to you is not a plan to make yourself a better person. It's a work whereby God, through the gentle softening of your heart, turns you into a creature that reflects His glory as you look like Christ Himself. You radiate, you radiate His joy, His love, His peace, His patience, His gentleness, His goodness, His kindness, His self-control. It flows out from you because He is in you. And so what I'm describing to you is not one potential kind of life. It's not just another possible option among a long list of options, among a bunch of New Year's resolutions that you're free to pick from to make yourself a better version in 2018. What I am talking about here is true life. Look at verses 19 through 20. They, that's describing the Gentiles, the indistinct people, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. Here we see a very clear contrast between the life of those who are dead and indistinct and those of us who have true life. Notice here, look with me at all of the words that Paul uses to describe living in this world apart from Jesus. Go all the way back to 17. Follow with me in your Bible. I hope these words actually sound strange and unfamiliar, maybe even ugly to you. 
Listen, futility, darkened, alienated, ignorant, hardness of heart, calloused, sensuality, greed, impurity. Those are the words that describe a life apart from Jesus, an indistinct life like the world around us, the life of the unbelieving Gentiles. I would say a typical life. And if those are the words that describe the depths of your heart, how much progress do you think a New Year's resolution like giving more hugs or shining your shoes or shutting off your phone or baking a Christmas cake is going to make in your life? You see, Jesus is something categorically different. For that kind of problem, you don't need hugs to solve it. The way of the world is not the way of Christ. Look at the last bit of verse 21. Paul says, as the truth is in Jesus, this is true life. In Christ is true life. The truth is in Jesus. Where does Paul get that idea from? He gets it from Jesus himself. Jesus said the most radical, wonderful thing he claimed. Before his followers, his disciples, he said, you know this verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. That is an extraordinary claim. And yet people still go looking for the way in other places. Like walking to work, they think that that might show them the way. Or picking up a book, that might show them the way. They still go searching for a better truth other than Jesus, who said he is the truth. People still wander about in search of life. When Jesus has already declared to all who are hungry, to everyone who desires it, come to me and I will give you true life. And so the Christian life, it's a distinct life. It's a true life because it is the life of Christ which Christ lives out in us. But it's also a spiritual life. Look at verses 22 through 23. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So here we see again, those of us who are Christians, we have a former life. That's the life that we lived under the influence of the world. I've been calling it an indistinct life. It's a life that is corrupt through deceitful desires. But we have cast off that former life for new life in Christ. And this life is a spiritual life. It is spiritual in nature. It's a life whereby we are renewed in the spirit of our minds. One of my favorite books, if I can recommend it to you, here you go, read a book for a New Year's resolution, uh, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. I love it. If you were here last week, maybe you can see that I'm my father's son. Uh, in that book, Lewis does something very clever. I'm going to try and describe it to you. I'm sure I'll, I'll fall short, but it's a try. He takes the people of this world on a journey into the next life, and they go into heaven. And when the people of this world reach heaven... Instead of them being solid, like we are solid, they become ghosts, and the people of heaven are solid. The people of this world become these inky spirits, is how he describes them, and they meet these solid spiritual beings in the world to come, in heaven. 
do you see what Lewis does to help us understand that we see things backwards? Let me try and draw it out for you. We live in this world, and because we live in this material world, we think this world is the lasting world. And so when we think about those who've died, we think about them in spiritual terms as if they're nothing more than some kind of foggy being on the horizon. As if this world was the world that had substance, and the world to come is without substance. But the truth is, this world is perishable. The physical material life that we live now has an expiration date. And in light of eternity, this world is immaterial, do you see? And yet the life that we live in the Spirit is eternal life. It has everlasting properties. And so as you consider the year ahead of you, don't get confused into thinking that the resolutions that you make regarding your flesh are the truly important resolutions. As Christians, we don't neglect the flesh. We don't neglect the material world. We care for this material world. We care for our flesh. Those are great gifts that God has given us, and they have significance. But we understand that this, this is a jar of clay. It's perishable. It has an end date by nature. The true and distinct life that we have in Christ, that life is spiritual and that life is imperishable. So as we think of the new year, the days and weeks and months ahead of us, let's not stop our planning and our thinking at the terminus of our bodies as if our health were the only important thing, as if our weight were the only important thing, as if our bank account were the only important thing, our home, our family. Those are important things, but they're not ultimate things. They're perishable things. And so let us think about Christ and our eternal life with Him. This is what it means to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. That's what we're told to do here. Verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And if you want a really good New Year's resolution, there's one for you. To spend this year being renewed in the spirit of my mind. What does that mean? I think it's more simple than you might think. Colossians 3, I think, tells us very clearly and explicitly. I memorized this verse long ago. I get nervous in front of people, so I tend to write it down so I don't screw it up. But this might be a good one for you to memorize for this year. If then you have been raised with Christ... Set your mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let me say it again. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There it is, laid out very simply, almost too simply, right? Wouldn't we love for it to be a little bit more complicated so that when the end of the year came and we didn't do a good job, we could say, I've got a good excuse. It was really hard. It's not. You've died just as Christ has died, but because he has been raised to new life, you too have true spiritual life. And to live this 
resurrection life daily, you have to set your mind on Christ. You have to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Look to Jesus where he is seated at the right hand of God. Setting your heart, your desires, your ambitions, all of your thoughts on Christ. Fixing your eyes on Jesus as he rules and reigns at the right hand of God the Father. Here and now and in every day of 2018. Right now, Jesus is seated as Lord of all. And that should dominate every moment of every thought that we have. Gabe was telling me uh, that he had a conversation with a guy that he met a few weeks ago. And the guy said to him, you know, some people are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. I'd never heard that before, but I guess that's a thing that people say. Um, I'm not, I don't mean to pick on you, but if it's a thing that you say, I encourage you to stop saying it. Because when, when, when he said this, or when Gabe was telling me this story, he and I, we had a good laugh about this. Because nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. The only way that we will ever be of any earthly good is if we are utterly and completely heavenly minded. I think the Apostle Paul would have said if he had written that down, he would have said something like this. Most people are so earthly minded that they're of no earthly good. And as Christians, we have to understand that the life that we live is a spiritual life. The only way that we will ever live it rightly is through the power of the Spirit of God, constantly drawing our eyes back to Jesus Christ, gloriously seated on His throne, giving us His life, moment after moment after moment. Finally, I want you to see that the Christian life is new life. So Paul, in verse 24, writes, Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Here's where we get to the heart of the problem with a resolution like this. In 2018, I'm going to be a better Christian. Man, God alone is righteous. God alone is holy. Jesus said, why do you call me good teacher? Because God alone is good. To be a Christian, then, is to reflect the holiness and righteousness of God. But you will never do that through sheer effort or willpower or desire or resolutions. You can't even do it on your own at all. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. It can only be done in you through the life that Jesus offers you. And so you do indeed have some action to do in which you need to participate in the process. Paul says, put on the new self. But I would say that that action is simply receiving from God true spiritual life by looking to Christ who gives it to you. Now, having said all this, I want to confess to you my struggle with these ideas on a regular basis. I hope I don't get emotional. For some reason, I, I feel emotional this morning. But I think if I had a theme to go with my Christian walk as I evaluate my life, it would be this, coming up short. That would be the theme that I would give my Christian life. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe that's how you feel as you pursue Jesus. That more often than not, you come up short. I can say in my heart, I want to be like Jesus. 
I long to be like him. I long to reflect him. I long for the world when it looks at Grady to say, I see Jesus. But often all I feel is this coming up short. My soul aches for greater holiness. And what I find more often than not is that try, try, try as I might, I always come up short. And down in the depths of my despair, when, when, I, when I am quiet enough to sit in that despair and to not go distract myself from the discouragement, do you know what I hear? I hear this incredibly comforting whisper of Jesus, and I hear him say to me, it is finished. It is finished, which is what he cried out on the cross as he finished the work of our salvation. I am clothed in true righteousness and holiness because I am clothed in the grace of Jesus in the work that he has done for me. And honestly, sometimes, I think sometimes God leads me to that despair because the only place where I will be still enough to hear him say, it is finished, is in the discouragement, in the brokenness, where I stop relying on myself and reach out for something to bring some hope. And there I find the truth. I am made new. I have been raised to new life. Christ has recreated me in the image and likeness of God himself. And this is a work that God has done so that no one can steal his glory in raising the dead to life. See, if I could start 2018 and say, I'm going to be a better Christian, then when the end of the year rolled around and I succeeded in that work, who would I give praise to? To myself. But when God does this work, we get to the end of the journey and we look and we go, only God could do a work like this. I can't do these things. I will always come up short. And that is what leads me back to God to say, glory be to Jesus Christ for the finished work that he has done. This too is a gracious work of God to bring me low so that I look to him to see that through Jesus I have life. New life, spiritual life, true life that is distinct life. It is Christ alive in me. As Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. Let me just give you one final illustration and then a psalm, a brief portion of a psalm to close. And man, children are just walking living illustrations. So forgive me for tapping into them as much as I do. But yesterday, I'm sitting in my office and I'm working, and my office window at my house looks right out into the street where my children are playing. And I have the window open because the air is cool, and my children keep yelling in at me and interrupting me as I'm trying to get some work done. And they desperately want my attention. They're crying out to me, Daddy, Daddy, watch this. Daddy, Daddy, look what I can do. Again and again and again, they want me to see all of the very neat things that they can do on their bikes and their scooters, how fast they can go and how they can stand up and ride down the curb. And they're all cute, silly, insignificant things. If you saw them, you'd be like, eh, whatever. But my children wanted so desperately for me to be proud of them in all of their efforts. It was an obvious attempt 
to gain my approval. And of course, I was proud of them. I, I stopped my very important work to watch them do their silly, insignificant things, and I approved. And I was impressed, and I was proud of them. But all of that, the, 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 the pride, the approval, it came long before they rode the scooter down the curb. You see? I'm proud of my children, and I approve of them, not because of the silly things they can do on their scooters or their bikes. I'm not proud of them. I don't approve of them because of their silly accomplishments. I am proud of them, and I approve of them because of who they are. They are my children. And so the Christian life is Christ's life lived out in us. And it is God's approval for us poured out into our spirits through grace because we are the children of God through the work of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing more to be added to what he has done when he declared it's finished. And so resolutions are good. I encourage you to have them, but they will never add anything to the finished work of Jesus. On their own, your resolutions are insufficient to make you a better Christian. Resolutions might be part of the process in putting on the new self, and therefore I encourage you to consider them. They may help you refocus your gaze upon Christ who is your life. If you give yourself the resolution to memorize Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3, that's a great resolution because it'll bring your eyes back to Jesus. But nothing in that resolution will add to what Christ has done to make you a child of God. It can never do anything more than what Christ has already done, recreating you after the likeness of God in His righteousness and His holiness, giving you a life that is distinct, true, spiritual, and new. So here's my prayer for you, for our church this year. Let me just read a portion of Psalm 62. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Father, I pray that you would be our refuge. That in this new year, we would live a distinct life, a true life, a spiritual life, a new life through the finished work of Christ. Lord, let us fix our eyes upon you to know you more. Let us hear this whisper, it is finished. Let us know what it means for us to be your children, to understand your approval, your acceptance through Christ. And let us stand on you, our rock, in whatever the future may hold for us. We bless your name for this work that you have done. Thank you that we are called children of God. Amen.